Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. If you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be there for just a moment, and then we're going to be in some other verses. So, Happy New Year. I don't know if anybody else feels the same way, but does it seem like only two days ago it was the end of 2019? Or maybe we're just hoping that it was the end of 2019 and the last two years were just a strange, nightmarish blur. But when we look back over the the last two years or so, uh, so many things have happened. So much turmoil, so, so much conflict, so much confusion, so many different voices shouting all sorts of other uh, differing uh, opinions and, and different facts. I think we all know that we can put that in air quotes uh, because so many of the facts that we've heard about different things aren't really facts at all. They're just elevated opinions. And, and whenever we look back over all of that, it's easy to, to just get to just reach a point where you, you know, I just don't care anymore. I'm just kind of numb to it all. And the other thing that we find with that, and I don't, don't mean just the news cycle and the political world, but we find that same type of, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I just really don't care much, in our spiritual lives too. And I've talked to a number of pastors and I've referenced uh, these conversations multiple times over the last couple of years. But I've talked to multiple pastors who have said uh, what you've heard me say before, and and their churches are experiencing much of the same thing. Uh, We have, there are people who have just sort of checked out because they they didn't like the way something was handled. Uh, I talked to one pastor the other day and he said, uh, I had had people on one side saying that you're not trusting God enough uh, through all of these seasons. And, and then he said, I had other people yelling at me saying, you're not trusting science enough. And he said, in between the two, I'm just trying to do the best that I can for the church itself. And so he said, you know, we've had all sorts of people get upset from both sides. And we find that we've had, uh, we've had individuals who have just gotten really comfortable, uh, just kind of checking out and staying home on Sunday morning. Uh, I had one pastor say that some of his folks had said, you know, it's so much easier for us just to eat, you know, eat cereal in our pajamas, sitting on the couch with the kids watching the service. And then we're like, all right, what do we do with the rest of the day? You know, and so they don't really show up uh, if I'm talking to you and you're watching right now. Okay. Um, so, so then you have other, other groups, um, and this was the saddest, this was the saddest thing, hearing this. People saying this, whenever we were always going to church, we were always involved with church, we, we were at church, and then when everything happened over the last two years and we just sort of checked out, we realized that our lives are really no different with or without church. So we've just given up on church because we're close enough to Jesus as we are. Well, there's a problem with that. The problem is, evidently, these individuals weren't growing when they were at church. So they were here, they were uh, maybe marginally participating, and then they just sort of check out. And, and this is the same across the board. It's not just unique to East Haven. I've, we've, I've talked to other pastors, and they're like, yeah, we, 
we have those people that are like, well, church didn't really make a difference. And I didn't know it didn't make a difference until I got outside of church. And then I realized it's not really any different whether I'm there or whether I'm not. And so we, we can get into these, these ruts of thinking and these ruts of living and these ruts of church attendance and these, these ruts of just doing the same old, same old every every time we're presented with the opportunity to do something. And so this morning, as we start this new year, this isn't a, this isn't a sermon about New Year's resolutions, and that this isn't a sermon about let's just do better. This is a sermon about getting unstuck from our ruts. Because we all can get into ruts. We can all have rutted kind of thinking. And can I just say, um, one of my mentors He was fond of quoting somebody long before him who made this statement that a rut is just a coffin with the ends kicked out. That's all it is. A rut is just a coffin with the ends kicked out. That's all a rut is. A rut is doing the same old, same old, and then maybe complaining about it or maybe fussing about it or doing the same old, same old, and just being happy with the same old, same old day in and day out of our spiritual lives. Well, that's not how we are called to live in God's Word. And so this morning, very briefly, I want us to just look at some ideas about how do we get unstuck from our spiritual ruts. Because we do have to understand there are some things that God's Word clearly says. Now, if you just look up, let me find a verse that deals with living a life kind of a a life, a a life of being in the rut, you can find some verses, although you might not find that word mentioned. But today I want us to look at some of the ways we can get unstuck from our ruts. And maybe you find yourself in some of these particular points we're making today. Maybe you don't. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying nudge your spouse and say, that's you. Don't do that. All right. Or point or tap your neighbor and say, I believe you need to listen. Don't do that. But but we find ourselves all too often in rutted lives. So let's just start in Revelation chapter 3 and look at uh, some ways we can get unstuck from our rut. Revelation chapter 3, uh, we find this is to the church at Laodicea, starting with verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation I know your works, you are neither hot or neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now this is the words of Jesus to this church in Laodicea. Laodicea got its water from an underground aqueduct. And that water that came out of that aqueduct, it was lukewarm. It was sort of brackish. And so we find that that Jesus focuses in on an image that everybody in the town would have understood, an image that would, a metaphor that would have been very familiar to them. And he says, you people in this town, you're just like the water that's coming out of that aqueduct. You're lukewarm. You're not hot like some nearby hot springs, and you're not cold like some mountain streams and some nearby cities. No, he says, you're you're lukewarm. And he said, therefore, I'm going to spew out of my mouth because they were living a life of complacency. If you want to be unstuck from your rut, you need to resist a life of complacency. These people in Laodicea, they were neither hot nor cold. They weren't on fire, excited, 
passionate about following Christ, but on the flip side, they did not completely reject him. They kind of wanted to live in this halfway place, this lukewarm place. Some of you know I love coffee. And I, I, I will deal, I, I like iced coffee. And I like coffee. I don't like it blistering hot, um, but some people I know do. But I like it hot. I don't like to reach for the coffee pot and pour a cup of coffee and take a big drink of it and it be lukewarm. I just don't, I don't, I don't enjoy that. No more that I would enjoy drinking, you know, on a, you're on a hot summer day and you go and you go, you know what I'd really like after working in the yard? I'd like a big, tall glass of lukewarm water. Nobody says that. If you do, that's strange. You should talk to somebody. That's, we don't like lukewarm water. And so here's, here's Jesus saying, you're living a life of complacency. You're living a life in the in-between. And that's not what he calls them to do. Notice in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, he continues, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He's, he's telling the church at Laodicea, I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm telling you to repent. I'm telling you to get right. I'm telling you to get passionate about me, he says. Because we can grow so complacent in our lives. You know one way that complacency starts? It starts like this. It starts with us being in the center of God's will. And it starts as a good thing. We're in the center of God's will. We're pursuing God. Things are moving along. And it's as though we get into a groove. Now, grooves necessarily aren't bad. But if we stay in the groove, long after God's will has tried to lead us somewhere else and God has encouraged us and tried to move us toward growth and we resist and we stay in that groove, that groove eventually can become a rut. Most ruts start, most of them start in a good way. We start doing the good thing, the right thing, the valuable thing. But when God says, and now it's time for this, we say, I kind of like my groove. And we stay in the groove. And then the groove becomes a rut. And a rut is just a coffin with the ends kicked out. We can't afford to live a life of complacency. That's not what God has called us to. God has not called us to that. Now, I understand, I understand we say, but wait a minute, my life's not real exciting. My life doesn't have all this adventure and all this fun and all these things that I expected it to have. My life seems kind of mundane at times. Well, I understand that. Life can seem very, very mundane. And we have, maybe we have long seasons where things just seem very, very mundane. But can I tell you, in the midst of the mundane, we can draw close to God. We can be close to him. We can ex experience a deeper walk with him, even in those mundane moments. We're not talking about a life of complacency means that, that you're, you're or, or a lack of complacency means that you're just going to have excitement at every turn. That's not what, that's not what we find. But what we do find is that we can live a life that is vibrant and that is full and that is focused upon God, and we can do that with great joy. We do not have to live lives of complacency. Listen to James 4, verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If we know the right thing to do and we fail to do it, we're living in sin. If we know the right thing to do and we don't do it, and we say, you know what, I'm just going to continue to do this. Because I, you know, and, and notice it doesn't say, it, James does not say, to him... Who, who knows the wrong thing and then avoids it. That's not what he says. He says, if you know the right thing, 
the good thing to do, the right thing, the appropriate thing, the God-honoring thing, and then you don't do it. He says that's sin. We sometimes talk about sins of commission, things that you should not do that you do, but there's also those sins of omission, things that you should do that you don't. And so a life of complacency can rob you of those things that you should do, the right things, the good things, the God-honoring things. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to people about, about church or about getting involved in a group or about growing deeper, and they'll say something like this, you know what, I'm good. I'm good just as I am. I'm fine. I got enough Jesus right now. I don't need any more. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I come on Sunday morning and I go do the motions and I go through the thing and I, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I mean, you know, I can do that anywhere. It doesn't really matter. I mean, but you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of, you know, that's what, that's what I do. That's a life of complacency. That's not what we are to live as. Listen to James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice what James is saying. You draw near to God, he draws near to you. And then he gives them the encouragement, repent. Turn back toward God. You draw near to God, you, you pursue God, and God blesses you with his presence. That's how we deal with a life of complacency. So many times we have gotten complacent because we don't know God well enough. I'm not saying you don't know God. I'm just saying we don't know him well enough. There were times in my life that I've gotten complacent about certain things, and I can trace it back to not knowing God, not knowing about God, knowing God. There's a difference. And when you know God, it doesn't matter how mundane everything else in your life is because you're walking with God. It doesn't matter what goes on here, what goes on there, because you're walking with God in the midst of it. It, Your your, your hope, your, your future is not based upon everything that we see in the world. It's based upon who God says we are, who God says he is, and what God says he's going to do. And that will, should shake us and wake us out of lives of complacency. Life is too short to live a complacent life. God urges us. God calls us. God empowers us to live a life that is deep, that is rich, and that is full of his presence. You want to get unstuck from your rut? Avoid a life of complacency. You want to be unstuck from your rut? Avoid idolizing comfort. What do I mean by that? I mean, we take the idea of comfort and we elevate that to the ultimate goal. Not serving God, not following Christ, not sacrificing for him, but our own personal comfort. As long as I'm comfortable, I'm okay. As long as I'm comfortable and the kids are all right, I'm cool. Doesn't matter what else happens. I don't have to pursue God. I don't need all that. I just want enough God so I can be comfortable. Listen to Matthew chapter 7 verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The gate is narrow, the way is hard. The way literally, it's, it's narrow, it's conscripted. It's pressed in. It's the word that's used of a narrow mountain pass that you are navigating. 
a narrow mountain pass that you are walking that path and it's so narrow that you're having to strip off any extra things in order to make your way through it it's hard it's treacherous it can be difficult it can be costly because there may be things you have to leave behind and jesus says if you're going to follow me it's narrow it's it's there are things that it will cost you if you follow me the right thing the god thing always costs it always costs us it will always require sacrifice now i know we said but, but, but jesus already made that sacrifice absolutely but listen to what jesus says this is in luke chapter 9 verse 23 he said to all if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me now taking up our cross is not one of those burdens that we bear you know those times that we use that phrase well i have this difficult co-worker it's just the cross i bear or i've got this sickness it's just the cross i bear or i've got this difficulty or that difficulty it's just the cross i bear that's what jesus said that's not what jesus is talking about there he's talking about a life of self-sacrifice for the kingdom that's what he's talking about he's not talking about a difficulty in life he's talking about and, and that may lead to sacrifice but ultimately he's talking about our living lives that are sacrificial living lives that are crucified lives living a life that's a cruciform life our life should reflect the death burial resurrection of jesus the hope that we have in him but it should reflect the fact that we are willing to do anything give up anything in order to follow him we are willing to give up anything pay any cost to continue walking with christ that's the idea so and you find that a cross is not comfortable as the old saying goes there are no padded crosses the cross is an instrument of torture it's an instrument of death and jesus says if you're going to follow me you have to pick up your cross daily and follow me follow in my example my example of self-sacrifice for the will of the father and that's how we live our lives but so many times what we want to do is we elevate and then idolize the idea of comfort and we say the ultimate goal is me getting my needs met and me feeling good and me being most comfortable it's a it's a very strange thing because you find that in other parts of the world that's not how they think within the church it's it's very prevalent here in america but that's not so prevalent in other places except where we're exporting that idea you find this idea in other places of the world that they understand when they come to christ it may cost them their lives it may cost them their family relationships it may cost them their jobs it may cost them everything they depend upon from a worldly viewpoint that's what it costs them and in america it's it's not really that way yet who knows what it will be given another 10 20 years but as of right now we we don't experience that but you find in the new testament times this was commonplace if you said you're going to follow jesus and you're going to follow jesus alone that could be a very very uncomfortable place to be socially politically even religiously because a lot of the religious leaders of the day would have fought against this idea and did fight against this idea so we don't live a life where we're idolizing comfort where is it in your life that you've elevated comfort to the point that it's become an idol 
And we say, all I want is I just want to be comfortable. I can't tell you the number of times I've had people come to me and say, uh, over the years, not just here, but the church where I served before, and they'll come and they'll say, I just want a church where I'm just completely and totally comfortable. And I was like, completely and totally comfortable? And they're like, yeah, I mean, like, comp-. I was like, yeah, define comfortable. And they're like, well, you know, it's just easy and everything's great. Nothing's really required of me. I don't, there's no real expectation for me. I can just kind of come and, you know. One of my former pastors used to refer to that as hot tub Christianity. You just like to show up, get in the warmth, just sit and soak till you get done. That's, that's that idea of idolizing comfort. You don't find that in the Bible. It's hard. It can be difficult. It's costly. It always costs. So if you're in the rut of comfort, and I'm not saying that comfort's a bad thing, but when we idolize it, that when it that's when it becomes a rut. Uh, listen to what Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, the words of Jesus. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's, he's writing in the context of these physical needs, these earthly needs. What will we eat? What will we wear? And Jesus says, listen, the number one thing you seek is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God knows you need all these things. He's going to take care of all of that. But you seek him. You seek his kingdom first. You, you put his kingdom above your comfort. Do you realize there are people who are dead now because they died for the faith that if they had elevated comfort to the place that, that sometimes we elevate comfort, that they would have never, they would have never been in a position to die for the faith. They would not have wanted to further the gospel. If, if it were all just a matter of idolizing comfort, none of the apostles would have gone and done what they did. They wouldn't have. They wouldn't have spread that message. But we are called, again, to live a life that is reflective of of the sacrifice of Christ that he made for us. And then the way we sacrifice our daily lives for him and live our lives for him in such a way that it brings him glory, honor, and praise. But we don't idolize comfort. Comfort is great. When we can get it, yes, enjoy it. But it's not something, it's not the primary thing we seek. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So if you've been in a rut where you've just been seeking comfort, would you allow God in 2022 to challenge you to step outside of that comfort zone? Because the comfort zone and the combat zone are two different places. And God has called us to go and live for him no matter the cost. You don't do that in the comfort zone. We live in the combat zone because we are followers of Christ. Another way that we can get into a rut is if we just live with a great sense of negativity and feel like we need to share that with everybody. So if you want to get out of your rut, you want to get unstuck from your rut, very simply, stop complaining. That's a biggie. Just stop complaining. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, I know sometimes we look at that verse and we say corrupting talk, that means curse words. That's what he's talking about. Can I tell you, that word is a blanket word that means any negative talk, any sinfully negative talk. That can be curses, that can be complaining, that can be griping, that can be gossip, that can be anything. 
But he says, let no, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And which includes complaining. Because he says, only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That's a great thing that we can think back on in 2022. Or as we look forward to 2022, or as a, something we can use in 2022 as sort of a, a, a barometer, is what I'm saying bringing grace to the hearers. If it's not, maybe I don't need to say it. And so we find that we can get in this rut of complaining. And you end up with chronic complaining. Now, let's go ahead and clarify. Yes, the gospel, the truth of God's word, the message of Christ will create conflict. It just will. That's just, there's the, the, the biblical idea of the offense of the cross. So there's the idea that whenever we talk about Jesus being the only way, and the reason that Jesus came is because we are sinners. We are not, oh, at heart, we're good people. No, we're sinners in need of a Savior. That offends people because people don't like to be called sinners. And this is what God says, though. And so we find that so many times we try to take the gospel and make it say something that it doesn't. Paul says in Galatians 1 that if anyone is preaching any other gospel, let him be accursed. This is the way it goes. This is exactly the truth of the word of God. And then he goes into this. This is Galatians 1.10. For, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, yep. I'm getting some pushback. Yeah, there's going to be conflict about the gospel. Yes, yes, yes. And he said, but the bottom line is, I'm not still trying to please people. I'm trying to please God. And that's going to put him at odds with people who aren't trying to please God. And so we need to understand that in our lives. Maybe you have family members. Maybe you have people that are around you. Maybe you have coworkers. And they are just the chronic complainers. And if you aren't careful, they'll drag you into that rut with them. And then you'll be living in that same place. We all have them, right? We all have them in our lives. Goodness, we have them here at the church. I'm not naming names, but we have them here at the church. The other day I started thinking, I just started adding up. This was about a month ago. And I came to around about eight or so people that I know of. Now I know some of you are like, well, you don't know about so-and-so. They talk about you in the hall. They just, (laughs) they just never come to your face. Okay, fair enough. There's probably more, but but I get to thinking, I was like, I can think about, about like eight, about like eight people. And then God reminded me like, you know, I sent 10 spies into the promised land and eight of them came back whining. So, I mean, okay. And so, um, take that for what it will. But I was, I was thinking about that. And, and I was thinking about the times that I've gotten into cycles of chronic complaining. And you know what I realized the more I thought about it? Here's the thing that nobody, nobody says about people who chronically complain. People who are chronically complaining, I, I, I don't know that, I don't know when I've been in a chronic complaining mood or mode, I don't know, or mood, I don't know that anybody ever said it to me. I wish they had. But, but this is what hit me. I, I, was, I was thinking, I was thinking about two things, first of all. First of all, I was thinking about in the book of Philippians, there's in Philippians uh, 4, verse 2, and this isn't in your outline. But, but Paul writes, and he just makes this little note, and he says, I implore Euodia, if, you're, if some of you have a, you're expecting a baby girl and you want a name, it's pretty good. Uh, I, I implore Euodia, 
and Syntyche, there's another good one there, if it's twins, I, I implore you, Odia and Syntyche, to be in the same mind in the Lord. I, I, I urge them to agree in the Lord. And that always struck me. I mean, think about this. Here we are. Here we are so many years removed. And these two women in the church at Philippi had argued and fussed and had so much conflict amongst themselves that now the only thing we know about them is that they were having a disagreement. Imagine being recorded in God's word and just as a footnote in one of Paul's letters and Paul's like, uh, so-and-so, you need to get right with Jesus. I mean, even if you get right, I mean, it's recorded. Think about that. Man, that's hard. So I was thinking about this. And then I was thinking about when I first came here on staff. And I had a couple of people come to me and they said, listen, you, you need, you, you should be glad. And again, I'm not calling any names, but you should be glad that you never had to deal with this particular person. And it was a particular person who had died many years ago here at the church, died many years ago. And this is what I was told. All this person ever did was complain. All this person ever did was fight against where the church was going. All this person ever did was fuss and backbite and grumble. That's all the person ever did. And after that conversation, it struck me. This is the sad reality. When we live lives as chronic complainers, our reputation in life, if that does not change, our reputation in life becomes our legacy in death. When that person's name was brought up, there was never any like, you know, but let me tell you this positive thing this person did. Let me tell you how encouraging they were in this area. Let me tell you how they sacrificed. No, it was just all they ever did. Now, is that fair? Well, no, I'm sure they probably did something good. And now I know about this time, sometimes we'll say, yeah, but people should focus on the, on the positive they do. And talk about that. I agree. But can I tell you, we don't need to make the positive hard to find. We don't need to hide the positive and make people dig for the positive behind a wall of complaining and griping and fussing. And if we live our lives as chronic complainers, we run the risk of whenever we die, that legacy that we leave is the same reputation that we have. And that's one of just constant complaining. And we are not to grumble and complain and fuss. Now, I know sometimes there are legitimate concerns. Absolutely. But I've heard some complaints and stuff sometimes, and I'm sitting there thinking, what? Why are we even fussing about this? I never hear somebody say, Pastor, I'm just really concerned because I'm not telling enough people about Jesus. I'm really concerned because my prayer life isn't what it needs to be. I'm really concerned because I'm not leading my family in the way that I need to lead them. No, but there's a host of other issues that keep coming up. And I'm going, really? Really? So can I just tell you this? First of all, first of all, stop complaining, biblically speaking. Secondly, let me apologize. I want to apologize for you or apologize to you. I want to apologize to you since I've been here, not only as lead pastor, but, but as connecting and serving and executive pastor. I just want to apologize to you. I spent far too much of God's time dealing with chronic complainers. I apologize for wasting my time in that way. I apologize. And can I tell you one of my, one of my goals for 2022 to not spend that much time 
seriously, to not spend that much time dealing with chronic complainers. I'm just not. I'm just not. I'm over it. I'm done. All right. There, 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 are, people, there are people dying and going to hell. Do you get that? The stakes are life and death, not just here, but eternally speaking. Come, let's pray and let's, let's fuss against the powers that be that are working against the will of God. But let's stop with the backbiting and bickering over things that honestly don't matter. I'm not talking about, and I know sometimes people say, oh, well, I know in 50 years, it, you know, that won't, you know, it won't matter. I know, in, I know in five years, this probably won't matter. Can I just tell you, if it's not going to matter in five years, I really doubt it matters now. Okay? And I'm talking to me. I'm talking to me as well. Right? There, there are times I can get in this rut of complaining. The Bible urges us, stop. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things do all things, do all things without dispute, without grumbling or disputing. That means we're not grumbling toward God and we're not disputing with each other so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud. I did not run in vain or in labor or labor in vain. Paul says, don't grumble against God. Don't grumble against his will. Don't dispute with each other. I'm not saying there won't be personality conflicts. There will be. I'm not saying there won't be differences of opinion. There will be. But ultimately, let's realize who the real enemy is. The real enemy is the world, the flesh, and Satan. That's it. That is it. There's a story that's told many years ago that happened with a battleship that was in the harbor of Quebec. And as they were there awaiting uh, the battle that they knew was probably coming, they looked across the harbor and there was a cathedral. And the cathedral had a number of statues of saints lining, rimming its walls. And so the sailors aboard the ship started doing a little target practice. They started firing their cannons over toward the the cathedral trying to knock down these statues and they did and they'd miss a few and they'd shoot a few more well then when it came time for the battle and the battle began these guys had very little gunpowder and very little ammunition left to actually do battle and it cost them dearly and the question was asked why did they fail so abysmally And the answer came back, they were too busy shooting at the saints. They were too busy shooting at the saints. Can I just tell you, there is a war waging, and we cannot afford to waste energy, effort, and time shooting at the saints. We can't. We can't. If we're in that cycle and that that rut of complaining, stop complaining. Get out of that rut. Find something positive. Find something positive. And focus upon that and pursue the will of God. Finally, if you want to get out of your spiritual rut, never compromise on eternal matters. Never compromise on eternal matters. If it is an eternal thing, if it's an eternal matter, don't compromise. Now, I know there are ways that we can compromise. There are preferences, there are opinions, there are different things you can compromise on. When it comes to an eternal matter, 
Do not compromise. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.4. Paul writes to Timothy, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. If you're a soldier, if you're fighting for a country, you're fighting for a king, your goal is to please that one, to please the commander-in-chief, to follow his leading, to follow his guidance. And Paul says the, they don't get involved in the civilian affairs. They don't get involved in these little day-to-day things. That's not what they're involved in. They realize there's a war that's going on. There's no place for compromise there. You find in the book of Acts, when you find the apostles are, are threatened and they've been imprisoned and then they've been freed and they're back preaching again, and you find the Jewish leaders descend upon them and they say, we told you to not preach this whole Jesus thing. We told you to drop it. We explain this to you very carefully, and you find in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. When it comes right down to it, we just have to obey God. They're not going to compromise. Can I tell you, everything in the world that is standing against God himself will tell you to compromise, if not outright reject him. But compromise, spiritual compromise, is kind of the insidious little beachhead approach that the enemy takes. If you will just compromise in this one little area, that's all. We'll leave you alone. Just compromise in this. Just say this and compromise and everything's fine. And you compromise in that. And then what happens? Okay, if you'll just compromise here. We're not saying give up God. We're just saying do this. See, so many times we operate under the impression that Satan's goal is to make us hate God. That's that's how we operate. Satan's never going to tempt me to hate God. I'm never going to hate God. No, 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 no. Listen, Satan doesn't have to tempt us to hate God. All he has to do is tempt us to love something more than God. All he has to do is tempt us to love something as much as God. And then the compromise snowball begins to roll down that hill, gathering steam and gathering mass as it goes. Don't compromise on spiritual issues. First of all, make sure they're really spiritual issues. Okay? Sometimes we want to take, we want to take an opinion and we feel so strongly about it, then we think, well, God must surely agree with me. And surely I could find a verse if I needed one. And then we elevate that to that place. No, I'm talking about what God says in his word, clearly in his word. We don't compromise on eternal matters. We don't compromise on our day-to-day life in eternal matters. We don't compromise on the only way we can know Christ. Can I tell you, this has, I've I've been watching this. And I'm talking about our church. And I'm not casting stones at other churches. But I've been watching something that's been taking place. And I know arguably we say, well, that's been around for a while. I understand, but I, I, it, seems to be, it seems to be gathering more steam. And it's this. Within the church today, within Christianity today in America especially, there is a growing dilution of the gospel and I know we say, yeah, 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 I know, I know. Yeah, that's always been the case. There, there, it's just a very unique type of twisting and, and, and warping of the gospel. Just enough that if you stay on that trajectory, it will lead you farther away. 
I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about things where, well, people really aren't sinners. I, I mean, I've heard that from pulpits. Now, people aren't really that bad. Not really. I mean, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, but, but you know, Jesus, Jesus says he's the only way, but, but you know, there, there's, there's all, really and truly, if you just truly just, just believe in something, all you have to do is just believe in something. Just believe in God in general. Believe in a God, lowercase g, in general, or a goddess. Just believe in something. It'd be okay. Well, well God, God loves everybody. And I mean, God, God wants everybody to be in heaven. And, and God's going to take everybody to heaven. And, and I'm hearing these things from pulpits in America from people who, if they read their Bible, they would know better. And I'm telling you, it's very subtle. And, I, and I'm saying it very, very bluntly, much more bluntly than I'm hearing it. But that is the understanding behind it, that people are inherently good. And Jesus is so graceful that everybody gets to go. Everybody's going to go to heaven. And it's more important that you just believe in something in general than Jesus specifically. And those are things that are, that are spreading. And I've talked to people who have said, well, I mean, you know, we essentially believe the same thing. And, and you start talking to them. And then you tell them, no, we don't. We don't. Yeah, yeah, that's what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. There is a real heaven and there is a real hell. There is a real Savior and he is exclusive. There is only one way. It is through Christ. We don't compromise on that. We will never compromise on that. Not if we stay true to God's word. Listen to what we find in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no one else. It's the only way. I had a a young lady come to me one time. And she told me, this is when I was uh, a student pastor. She came to me and she said, I think it's really narrow that, they, that God would only provide one way of escape from sin through Jesus. That's narrow. That's just really, really narrow of God. If God, if God was loving, if God was truly a God of love, God would say, it doesn't matter how you come. I love you all. And so it doesn't matter how you get here. All roads are going to lead to me. So I said, let's just say that you were in a burning building and there was no escape. And suddenly a hole appeared in a wall and a fireman walked in wearing his full protective gear. And he came running up to you and he put that oxygen mask over your mouth and you got a breath of air. And he said, come with me. And offers to wrap you in his coat and run back out that hole that he's chopped in the wall. I said, what you're saying is that you would take that mask off and look at him and say, if you cared, you would have provided multiple ways for me to get out of this building. She said, I would never say that. I said, why would you never say it? She said, because, because I'm facing my death and destruction. I said, that's the problem. You don't see sin. 
as as destructive as it truly is. You don't see sin as as deadly as it is. And I can assure you, it is far, far worse than being in a burning building. Being, Being trapped in your sin is a far more dire consequence than being trapped in a burning building. And the grace and the love and the mercy that is shown to you by God sending his son to die in your place is far beyond the sacrifice, not to disrespect any of them, far beyond the sacrifice of any fireman who lays down his own life. That is just a minor reflection of the great sacrifice that Jesus made. That's the problem. We don't see the severity of our sin. So we don't see the magnitude of his mercy. When we see the true severity of our sin, we recognize his mercy for what it is. And when we see the severity of his sin and God provides a means out of his mercy, not because he had to, but because he loved us and was merciful in giving us Christ. When we see that for as it is, we see that sacrifice for it clearly. Then we'll say, there's no way I'm going to compromise because God himself didn't. A a price was paid. That's why we find in John 14, the words of Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. Maybe you're in that rut. Maybe maybe you've compromised on some spiritual things and you need to step back into the flow of God's goodness and God's will. But then again, maybe you may be in the rut of sin, that you've just been living your life of sin, and it's just beginning. And that's the thing about ruts. The longer you stay in them, and the more you travel them, the deeper they get. And you're deep into that rut of sin. Can I tell you, God is merciful, and God provides a way out of that rut through his son, Jesus. Perfectly God. And a perfect sinless human at the same time. 100% God and 100% man equals 100% Jesus. Jesus came and died a death that each one of us deserved because of the severity of our sin. But out of the magnitude of his mercy, he sent Jesus who dies on a cross for us. So that through him, if we trust in his sacrifice, we trust that he is who he says he is. That he is God himself, sinless God himself, a sinless man, a sacrifice on our behalf. If we trust that that sacrifice is sufficient and place our trust in him and ask for forgiveness of our sins, turn to him, surrender to him, we're saved. We will be saved. And then we live out that life of sacrifice day by day by day by day. And when we're living in that way, we don't get in a rut. Because we're living seeking God. And if we, we start lapsing, we can get into those ruts. And God says, no, out of the rut. Out of the rut. He calls us out of those ruts of our lives. He calls us to live lives that are full and that are rich and that are pleasing to him. Now, I don't know what your rut looks like. I've been doing a lot of thinking over the last few months about ruts in my own life. And God's pointed some out. So it's time to get out of these ruts. And can I tell you, I didn't like it. Can I tell you, it was hard. Can I tell you, I I know the issue with a rut is that usually when God moves us out of a rut, that rut usually just doesn't get filled in. That rut's still there. And we can get back in it if we're not careful. So avoid the ruts. If you're in a rut, follow God's will. Step out of that rut. That's not God's will. 
God's will is not for us to live in spiritual ruts. God's will for us is to live a life that is full of Christ. Get unstuck from your rut. Unstuck from your rut and hold fast and cling and stick to Jesus alone. In this year, 2022, and in all the years to come that God graces us with. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. We're thankful that you love us as we are, but you love us too much to leave us as we are. Thank you, Lord God, that your word, your word is truth. Thank you that it's timeless. And God, as I think back on my own life and I think back about the times I've gotten into ruts and I think about the ruts over the last few months that you've pointed out in my life, God, I thank you for that. As hard of a lesson as it was, thank you. Father, I pray for anybody here this morning. Maybe you've put your finger on some sort of rut. Maybe it's an area of neglect. Maybe it's an area of just active disobedience. Maybe it's some, it's some area that someone hasn't even thought of until this morning. And through your word, you brought it to mind. Father, I pray that we would have the boldness to recognize those things for what they are. And turn to you and repent. And allow you, by your mercy, to lift us out of that rut and set our feet on level ground so that we can run the race that is set before us with passion, with endurance, with purpose. Father, I pray for anybody here, anybody watching, anybody listening who may have never made a decision to follow you. Father, I pray today would be the day they would say yes to Jesus. Today would be the day they would say, no more sinful ruts for me. I'm not going to live in this rut of sin that just keeps getting deeper and deeper. I want Christ. And that they would turn to Christ alone for salvation. Ask him to forgive them. Give their lives to him. And then follow him the remainder of their days. Father, I pray for us as a church. I pray that 2022 will be a year where we see your hand, your blessing, your movement, your work in a very clear and a very special way. Father, I know there are people here in this congregation, because I've talked to them, that, that we agree, we have been praying that you would send revival. And Father, we pray that that revival would look like biblical revival. Not just a time where we're, we're just excited for the sake of being excited. But Father, we have a deep understanding of your presence, your holiness, your will, your desires. And that is our focus. Because you're the only one worthy of that. So Father, we give ourselves to you this year. Pray that you would use us as a church, use us as individual families use us as individual followers of christ wherever you may send us this year wherever we may find ourselves this year whatever divine appointments you make for us that you already know how you're going to orchestrate those details and bring us right in line with someone who needs the message that we have been given by you so father may we be found faithful and we ask these things in the name of jesus Amen.